Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. We've been walking through a series. This is our second week in this series on our identities. And so uh, we started last week, we talked about what it means to be witnesses, or two weeks ago, excuse me. Uh, We talked about what it is to be a witness. We looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where we are called to be ambassadors. Well, this week, we turn our attention to the idea that we are servants, that one of the things that we become when we come to Christ is we actually become servants. We, we become subservient to another cause, another purpose. It's true this morning that an investor has to believe in the product that he wants to invest in. I haven't done much investing, but you can take my word for it, right? If you're going to uh, invest in a product, you don't want to invest in something that's a sure fire fail, right? You don't invest in, uh, you know, something stupid. You invest in a product that you believe in. I'm kind of fascinated with these stories of, of, of large businesses that we find on the earth today that started off in some garage somewhere, right? You talk here about Apple or Hewlett Packard or whatever else it was. They started small and then became something large. Well, someone had to believe in the final product. Someone had to say, yes, this is worthwhile. Yes, this is a, a product that's significant, See, for us this morning, as we kind of look at Matthew 25, Jesus wants to invite us into a a life that is giving all that we have for a purpose in the kingdom. In fact, what we'll see is a a commentator looking at this passage will will reflect on it, and he'll say that uh, really all discipleship is this uh, idea of investing in something that uh, we're we're throwing all that we have on uh, the, the board, as it were. We're investing all that we have into this claim of Jesus Christ. See, this morning as we look at Matthew 25, we're going to see uh, this to be true. Our investment in God's kingdom shows the true nature of our heart's relation to God. Our investment in God's kingdom shows the true nature of our heart's relation to God, that there's something that is validating and verifying about our patterns of service to one another. And I think this is where Jesus is pushing in this parable that Brian has read us this morning. And so here's what we want to do. I want to actually kind of unpack the intricacies of this parable. And then secondly, we're going to turn and kind of unpack the spiritual meaning of that parable. And then finally kind of turn and look to Christ as the ultimate fulfillment, the ultimate servant, and then pull out some implications for us in our lives. So here's our our outline for the parable itself. The master entrusts his wealth to his servants in verses 14 through 18. And then in verses 19 through 25, the master rewards his servants according to their faithfulness. And then finally, the master punishes the slothful servant in verses 26 through 30. So we want to start with this first point. The master entrusts his wealth to his servant. We read this this passage in Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 14. For it, that's the kingdom of heaven, will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another uh, one, and to each according to his ability. Then he went away. 
And he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he, had the two, he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. And so what we see here in the first section in verses 14 through 15 is this kind of scenario that's described. And it opens up in verse 14 with this statement, for it will be like, you're saying, what's it? We're kind of plopping ourselves into the middle of passage. What's been happening in Matthew 24 and 25 is in Matthew 24, Jesus' disciples come to him and they say, what are going to be the signs of the end of the age? And Jesus starts unpacking, this is what it's going to look like before my return. Here's kind of the the markers of what this is going to look like and what's going to happen. And he describes kind of the continued degradation of society and what's going to happen there. But in Matthew 25, he kind of turns to uh, kind of pastor the disciples, as it were, and he starts with these three different sections in Matthew 25. The first is in verses 1 through 13. Um, In verses 1 through 13, excuse me, I've lost my place. Uh, The kingdom is like these ten virgins, five of whom were prepared, five of whom weren't, right? And so what happens is Jesus is telling his disciples, by the way, you should be prepared for my return. In this section, in verses 14 through 30, Jesus is looking at them and he's saying the kingdom of heaven is is like these three servants. And so this third servant doesn't invest. He's not faithful. And so there's this call to be faithful to his call. And then in verse 31 through the end of the chapter, we see not just a parable, but this story or this description of the separation of sheep and goats, those who are believing and those who are unbelieving. And the basis of that separation is upon their faithfulness with the least of these, that uh, these servants of Jesus were the ones who fed those who were sick, who fed or fed those or gave medicine to those who were sick, fed those who were uh, starving, who gave clothes to those who were naked. They were the ones who cared for the needs of those around them because they saw Jesus. And Jesus actually highlights this. He says that when I was poor, when I was naked, you fed me, you clothed me. So Jesus is saying, be, uh, be aware of the needs around us. Excuse me. But this parable in verses 14 15, through 15 gives us this particular scenario. And what happens is this wealthy man goes out of town. He goes on a journey. Now, just imagine a day in an age where there's no jet planes or bullet trains or anything else that which you can travel quickly. A journey of any distance would take months or potentially years. So the scenario given uh, means leaving your home. It means leaving your business. It means leaving your family affairs and, and entrusting them to faithful servants. And so that's exactly what happens in our account here. He entrusts, this master entrusts his wealth to three servants in particular. Verse 14 says it. He entrusted to them his property. And what happens is it goes on at lists that five talents are given to one servant, two talents are given to a second servant, and finally a single talent is given to the third. And it says in verse 15 that each uh, servant is receiving talents in accordance with his abilities, according to his ability. In fact, that word might be translated as power. It, they're uh, entrusted these talents according to their power or their capability, right? 
So these servants are recognized as being different from one another. That's why one receives five and one receives two and one receives one. They're given different amounts of kind of responsibility in accordance with their capability. But not only are the servants variously gifted, they're variously productive. If we look at verses 16 through 18, see, the two most capable servants double their investment. The one who's given five talents produces five more talents. The one who's given two talents goes out and immediately brings about two more talents. And before we kind of move on here, we just, for frame of reference, when we're talking about a talent, the ESV kind of invites us into this in one of its notes. It says, a talent is a monetary unit worth about 20 years wages for a laborer. So we're not talking about these small investments. We're not talking about 50 bucks or 100 bucks or whatever it is. This is probably something around the lines of, of what we would consider now about $31,000, a median income for the, the households in America. So if you're receiving 20 uh, years of $31,000 of income, that means that you're receiving about $620,000 as this talent would be. So if you receive a five talent investment, that's about $3.1 million in investments, right? Just imagine carrying that around in a briefcase with you, right? But the slave, in verse 18, the third slave, wastes his endowment. Look at verse 18. He who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. He takes his $620,000 and he buries it in the ground. And we might be tempted to think, hey, what's the big deal? Right? This master is going to get all of his money back. Why does this matter? See, we missed the point. The money was entrusted to his slave to accomplish his purpose. The master's purpose. The purpose is clear. You make more money, right? We all know the, the cost of inflation right now. Uh, you make the same amount of money, you're actually losing money because the sausage you buy at the, the grocery store costs twice as much as it used to. Or maybe you don't buy sausage. I don't mean to be offensive here this morning, right? Investment helps you uh, kind of keep up with the value of your money. And so this slave is not carrying out his master's desire. And sure enough, the master returns. In verses 19 through 25, we're going to see the character of this master as he comes back. Look at verse 19. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, he had, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered the, to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here 
you have what is yours. See, the master rewards his servants according to their faithfulness. And so we start off with these two examples of these faithful servants. The two faithful servants are rewarded by the master. Notice there's a kind of formula that happens here, and we'll even see it on the slides here in front of us. Uh, the same statements are made in verses 20 and in verse 22, and it highlights that uh, no matter what kind of production you made, uh, the, the reward was still the same. So uh, we see this phrase, he who had X amount of talents came forward. And then it's followed by saying, you delivered to me X amount of talents. I made X talents more, right? And then finally, in verses 20 and 22, we see this phrase from the master that, uh, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And it's good for us to stop and kind of dig into this statement from the master and just kind of unpack exactly what he's saying here. The first thing we have is a, a, commended, a commended character, right? That this master is affirming the characteristics of these faithful slaves. He says that, well done, good and faithful servant. These servants are affirmed by their master for accomplishing his desire, you and I, we might pass by these words quickly and say, okay, I've heard this before. But if you've ever had a boss that's just kind of a thankless individual, you understand what it is to be affirmed in your work. It's important for us to feel like we're doing a good job in the task to which we have been set. These servants are good and faithful in that they've accomplished their master's objective. They didn't abandon his objective in his absence. They didn't pursue their own desires. Instead, these servants saw the job through to the end, right? They've done what they have been called to do. And so he commends their character. Finally, he praises, or secondly, he praises their production. He says, you have been faithful over little. Again, we noted that, that the term faithful is used once again, right? Uh, funny that this is seen as little when we consider the size of the investment, right? We talked about uh, this $620,000 that's given for each talent. That would seem to us to be a lot of money, or maybe it's not to you, I don't know, but to me it is. And so there's a large investment that's entrusted, but this master describes it as a little because sooner he's going to entrust them even more. And that's what he goes on to say. A reward is promised. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. See, what we see this morning in this passage is that rewards for fruitful service is more service. Isn't that what he's saying here? I've set you over little, soon you'll be entrusted much. The reward here isn't just this life of sipping sweet teas in a, camp, uh, a hammock in the backyard. The reward here is one of continued faithful service. We'll kind of unpack this later on, but uh, notice that the master isn't just saying, good job, now you get to take a vacation. The master is coming and saying, I'm going to increase your workload. I trust you. I, I see you as a good and faithful servant. Come work more for me. And so he commends their character. He praises their production. And finally, the promise of reward is this entering into the joy of the master. 
It's this invitation to say, come, come and enjoy this with me. Come and enjoy this fruitfulness with me. See, this interaction actually serves to tell us more about the master than it does about the slaves. And if we kind of take ourselves out of the story for just a second and just recognize the spiritual meaning of this, we learn more about the heart of God through the lens of this master as he's one who, who's willing to reward his servants. The master gives honor and adulation to those who serve him well. The master is one who entrusts more responsibilities to those who have faithfully carried out their work. That's the heart of our God. That's the heart of God in heaven, right? But this tone is about to change considerably. As we press into verses 24 through 25, we're going to see this example of this third servant. And we're going to kind of uncover the heart of the master. Look at the excuse from this third slave in verses 24 and 25. Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. We see the scandal here, right? The servant blames his hesitance on his master's character. You see that here in this passage? I knew you to be a man who reaps where you didn't sow. You're someone who draws abundance where you didn't actually plant anything. Notice that the master doesn't ever actually rebuke him for the way he thought of him. He actually affirms it. But this slave comes forward to this master and says, because you are who you are, I was afraid. See, it's in this way that we see that the servant, this third servant, becomes just like Adam and Eve in the garden. The servant is afraid, and so he hides, right? He's afraid of what he knows the master to be, and so he buries the treasure. It's the truth this morning that a lot of times when we uh, understand the nature of our sin, we want to retreat away from the situation. We want to withdraw. We want to be far away from God. We saw this in, in Jonah. Jonah fled the presence of God as we looked in the early months of June. So this then is the point of discovery. Just like God comes into the garden in Genesis chapter 3 and starts asking questions, this slave is kind of, uh, kind of exposed. And this point where the servant has to give an account to the master whom he should have served kind of brings to the surface all of the issues of this text. See, the servant thinks that merely returning the investment would be sufficient, right? Here, you have what is yours, as it's stated in verse 25. This is fine. I've just kept what you've given to me. I've entrusted it. And so now it's coming back to you. So what happens in verse 26 through 30 is that the master starts interacting with this wayward servant. And just as we've seen the master's character in rewarding his servants, now we'll see his character in how he punishes this servant. Look at verse 26. 
But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's not a pretty picture here for our third servant this morning. And so the master leaves this formula that he had given in verses 21 and 23. And the word but shows up in, the verse, in verse 26 to show a contrast of what's about to happen. In fact, as Jesus tells the story, he's going to slow down and kind of give extra attention to this third servant and what's happening here with him. And notice how the, the master speaks. He condemns his character. He says, you wicked and slothful servant. If the two productive servants were were described as good and faithful, this third servant is described as wicked and slothful. These two things are actually kind of showing us the definition of others, the others, that the good servant who did what his master had asked is now held in tension with the wicked servant who didn't do what he was asked to do. The faithful servant is held in tension with the slothful servant. In fact, that word slothful is a good meaning. Uh, Craig Blomberg highlights it, and he says that it's actually uh, someone who draws back, who's timid. Someone who shrinks away from responsibility. See, this master's critique of this servant isn't that he wasn't productive, it's that he was shy that he was timid about his investment, that he wasn't actually engaging in the thing that he had been called to do. And in that way, he wasn't faithful. He was wicked. So he has a a condemned character. There's a criticized outcome in verses 26 through 27, right? He's, He's saying to him, hey, you knew that I reap where I don't sow? So why didn't you invest with the bankers, right? Now, you and I, we get this notion about bankers from this 21st century America, what that is. So you go to the bank and your your investment is is brought there and it's all clean and neat and you sign the papers and there's all kinds of things backing it. But these are more like loan sharks, right? This is not the neat, clean process that you and I envision in our society. If you were to go and lend in this first century Jerusalem kind of thing, this is not a neat, clean process. In fact, there's a high probability that you might actually lose money on your investment. R.T. France says that this prospect of lending to quote-unquote bankers would have been as risky as the venture capital of the first servants. France also cites that the Gospel of Matthew presents all discipleship as inherently risky. When we look through Matthew, we see these kind of statements where whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Or in Matthew 16, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus has constantly been setting in front of us this risk of discipleship. 
that you're going to risk your life. You're going to lay it down on the kind of uh, in front of the banker, as it were, and you're going to make this investment and, and you may lose. You're going to lose that thing that you've invested, but you stand to gain so much more in return. So notice then in this section that the master is more concerned that the slave be faithful than he is about the return of his investment. It seems by the nature of this suggestion that the master would rather have a servant who risked and lost than a servant who never risked at all. I remember years ago when we first started planting Gospel Community Church, we had so many uh, individuals, some of you here still with us, were part of this core team. And I remember thinking to myself one day, what happens if this thing fails? Even today, it's still possible, isn't it? What happens if gospel community has to close its doors? And you come to this place where you recognize that the effort is what brings God particular glory, not the success. That we might go through this process and we get six or seven years in and we say, you know what, it's time for us to close up shop. But God was still honored and glorified in the thing we did. We may not have produced a a vibrant church that still is in existence, but at some point, it was good for us just to even try. Someone has said that, uh, that good things are worth doing poorly. That we invested in something that was worthwhile, right? God, by His goodness, has allowed us to grow, and we're thankful for that. But it still remains to be seen. Christian things that that are taken with faith are still good things, no matter whether they're quote-unquote successful or not. So this master is dealing with the heart of his servant. Verses 28 through 30, he promises a different kind of reward. And he says, verse 28, take the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10 talents. And he gives us this maxim in verse 29, for to everyone who has will more be given and he will have, uh, excuse me, I lost my place, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. To everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. In fact, this is kind of an echo of what we've already seen in Matthew 13. Jesus makes the same statement. He says, to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. The point is that this servant will have his talent stripped away from him. That even the thing that he has, the little he has in comparison to these other two servants, will be stripped from him. Verse 30 brings even more judgment. He's to be cast out. He's no longer to be in the master's house. He's cast out into the outer darkness. He no longer has the safety and security of being in the master's house. Now he is in the state of judgment. He's outside of his master's favor. You know, I might step away from this and say, what does this mean? We have the story that Jesus is speaking, and it's in this specific context of, of God's kind of judgment and the end times and what's happening. What does this story kind of mean? And it's our job this morning to kind of jump into this first century text and to unpack a 21st century meaning, isn't it? 
See, Jesus will genuinely punish those who are not faithful to him and genuinely reward his faithful servants. That's kind of the upshot of the spiritual meaning of this passage. Let's kind of jump into that first phrase, that Jesus will genuinely punish those who are not faithful. See, this is a bit confusing. See, what's happening here in this passage is we're using the term servants in kind of its context of a parable, but it's not necessarily what we might describe as Christian servants, because there's a category of people in this that would be described as unchristian people. In fact, this third servant is a non-Christian person, a person who's not trusting in Jesus, who's not sharing the heart of his master, as it were. Jesus wants us to see that our present investments will show our eternal inheritance. He's inviting us to this reflection to say, God, in his goodness, has has kind of invested in any human being that draws breath, in any human being that bears his image. We are kind of invested in. We have something that has been entrusted to us, a life, and that we are to use it to God's purpose. But some of us are tempted to go out into the backyard and bury it. We know that our master is one who reaps where he hasn't sown. We know him to be a hard master. And so we become afraid and we bury our talent in the backyard. See, if we bury the life that is given to us, if we squander it with selfish living, if we ignore the purpose which God himself has given to us, we should anticipate a judgment from the God who has entrusted that to us, shouldn't we? The truth is that God has made you for his purpose, that you bear that purpose. And when you kind of veer off or stray from that purpose, you incur divine wrath upon you. The second statement is equally true. Not only will Jesus genuinely punish those who are not faithful, but Jesus will genuinely reward his faithful servants. See, the first two servants are rewarded for their faithfulness. In fact, the the text uses that term about four times in the span of two different verses in verses 21 through 23. It is the distinguishing mark between the rewarded slaves and the punished slave. Faithfulness. God will reward his faithful servants. So you and I know that someday we will be brought before his presence. And as Christians, we no longer face a judgment about whether we will be in heaven or hell, but we will face a judgment that will kind of assess the quality of our works, according to, to Paul in 1 Corinthians 3. That you and I, if we're in Christ, we don't stand to, uh, before God as if we might... Uh, kind of be thrown into the uh, eternal destruction described in Revelation, what we stand is we stand a judgment that will assess the quality of our works. And Paul says that some will be like hay and stubble, they'll burn up, and some will be like refined gold. See, this reward comes by sharing in the Father's work. 
if we were to go back to Matthew 19, there was a statement made by Jesus, and he's talking to his 12 disciples, and he says, you will sit on thrones and help me judge the nations, Matthew 19, 28. That there, he's making this statement that when we enter into this thousand-year period, you're going to help me in this area. The statement made here that uh, you've been given much or little, but now you will be entrusted much. It signifies that we will enter into a kind of work with the master. See, our future is one of shared responsibility where we actually take on the kingdom work of God where we actually kind of enter into this work with God himself. See, I don't think our reward will be any different than that described of the disciples, not that we'll sit and judge the nations, but that we will share in this kind of kingdom orientation of the Father himself. I think this is kind of wrapped up and meant when we hear the phrase in Romans chapter 8 that we become co-heirs with Christ. It's not that we are inheritors of, of this section of the earth or whatever that we kind of reap all of the bounty of it. It's that we're entrusted a portion of his kingdom, that we oversee it. See, this morning, as we kind of unpack this, we also want to turn our eyes and our attention to something else. Another statement that Jesus has made in Matthew chapter 20. It's on the screen here in front of us. Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 through 28, Jesus called to them and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your what? Your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, as we talk about this idea of service, of this kind of life lived in the kingdom, we recognize that Jesus was the first to do so, wasn't he? Jesus was that first pinnacle servant that always did his father's bidding. Jesus didn't come to be served, as he says so clearly here in Matthew chapter 20, that the firstborn of all creation didn't come to be pampered that Jesus had, had ministering angels in God's presence from before the foundations of the earth, that he didn't come to receive more glorification. He had all that he needed, as it were. But he set aside, as, as Philippians said, he set aside this, this sense of, of comfort so that he might come into the earth and serve. In fact, that's what the text says that he didn't come to be served, but to serve in giving his life as a ransom. Jesus himself was the true servant. Jesus was, was the one who laid down his life so that we might prosper and benefit. That Jesus became the servant to servants, as it were. He served us so that we might become servants. 
Philippians 2 unpacks this with such beauty that Jesus didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve, even to the point of his own self-giving. So that the immutable, unchangeable, undying God might go into a tomb and come out victorious to win for himself servants from every tribe and tongue and nation. The truth is this morning that you and I only serve in response to his service to us, right? That God has kind of laid the foundation for service through the service of his own son, Jesus. See, here's the truth this morning. That if you call yourself Christian, if you claim faith in Jesus Christ, you are a servant. We tend to hide behind spiritualized language. We say things like, I've not been called to that kind of service. I'm not called to that. I remember once a friend described a ministry opportunity to me here in Troy. And he said, you know, there's these kids and they meet in this particular area at this particular time. If we were to gather some people and go over there, uh, we could have some fruitful ministry amongst these kids. But you just got to know, lice, bedbugs, that's a, a real deal. Like with these kids, they don't have money. They're from broken homes. They, they, they deal with a lot of lice, a lot of bed bugs, a lot of kind of that stuff. And I just thought in my head, I'm not doing bed bugs, right? I'm out. That's for the real servants. I'll just do the preaching thing. See, all Christians are all servants. All Christians are servants. We take on the nature of our Savior true servants to all. As Jesus came to serve, we also should serve without qualification, without preclusion. We should be willing to serve anyone, anywhere, all the time, right? It's a, a book. Um, it's called Faith Mapping. It's written by Mike Cosper and Daniel Montgomery. And he gives us, in this chapter on being a servant, he gives us these three different options for how we might serve. Really, there's only three types of servant. There's the self-servant, there's the selective servant, and there's the servant to all. Self-servant says, I'm going to serve me. Service is inherently selfish. And the truth be told this morning, if you're truly a self-servant, the likelihood that you, you probably wouldn't even be here this morning. See, what we find a much larger category in the church is this second category of a selective servant. It's the person who picks and chooses their environments in which they might be servant, and they move in and out of their identity as a servant. They, they want to serve this people who, who are like them, and they value what they value, and they know what they know, but they don't want to serve this other category of people. There's this great divide between those two categories of those who are service, service, servable and those who aren't servable. Excuse me. 
Cosper describes it like this. He says, as selective servants, our willingness to serve others is actually just a facade for more self-service. It comes in the form of glorious Martha Stewart-inspired dinner parties or acts of service that take place on platform or in front of cameras. It's the same spirit that leads presidents to soup kitchens for 30 minutes on national holidays. While there may be some sincerity in there, it's mostly just about the cameras. It's service on my time, my schedule, my location, my priorities. It's the Christian who digs wells twice a year in an impoverished country and wouldn't loan you a lawnmower to save your life. It's hospitality with implied expectation of payback, and it's anti-gospel. Imagine how weakened Jesus' testimony to the disciples would have been if the moment he had finished washing their feet, he kicked up his own feet and said, who's got me? I'm next. We engage in these patterns of selective service so that we say, I'm going to serve this person in this way at this time, but on a Tuesday afternoon at three o'clock, don't ask me to be a servant at the office. When it's Sunday and the football game's on, don't ask me to be a servant in my home. Don't ask me to serve when it's inconvenient for me. Let me serve you when it's convenient and all the stars align for me to be able to do the things that you're asking me to do. See, the third category that they give us is a servant to all. Christian service is service to anyone. Because we believe that God's kingdom is for all people, there is no one too low to serve. All Christians are servants, and Christians are servants to all. We kind of bring this up at a time in our church where we've had a shortage of servants recently. It's not that our members aren't serving. In fact, as we've kind of looked into things, we've kind of added up what all the members of Gospel Community Church are doing, and they're on average carrying some two to three different positions here at the church and various aspects of service. If you're a member here, we anticipate that we, we would uh, that you would kind of participate in what we call every member ministry. And this is based on the fundamental conviction that God has, has equipped or given spiritual gifts to every believer. That's what we see in places like Ephesians 4 and 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans chapter 12, that God gifts his people so that they might exercise their gifts and bring about the maturing of believers in the body of Christ. So if you're here and you're a member at Gospel Community Church, we, we want you to see that we believe in every member ministry, that every member has a part And we're asking you to kind of lock arms with us. See, the problem we have now is something different. We have a number uh, who are attending, but have not entered into membership and therefore haven't been admitted into regular patterns of service. Now, just hear me. I'm not trying to pressure anyone into, into becoming a member. If you're legitimately on the fence and you don't know what you want to do, by all means, take your time, make a good decision. But if you're here and you've been with us and you're saying, I love Gospel Community Church, but you haven't entered into membership, there's a disconnect there. We've constantly talked about membership as this intentional saying the same things about Jesus. We, we want to lock arms with those who say the same things about Jesus as we do. 
And so membership is the way that we do, uh, that we kind of go about kind of clarifying what we say about Jesus so that we can enter into service together. We've described this process of membership and its essential nature to the church. We, we kind of have to describe who's in and who's out based upon what we're saying about Jesus so that we have a clarification of what's happening. Because we intentionally want to lock arms with you as witnesses, as servants, as family. That's what we want to do. And so some of us, we get frustrated about this process of membership, but I'm telling you, it's very important for us to have clarity about what the gospel message is and what we are to do in response to the world and to one another. See, the truth of this is this morning this. That gospel community church is what we make it. Gospel community church is what we make it. Gospel community will only be the expression of God's kingdom on earth that you and I, as members of this church, make it to be. As an expression of this, our children's church workers are coming to me and they're saying, I don't know if we have enough volunteers to continue. And we've had this kind of conversation, this dialogue, and by God's grace, we've, we've done really well. We have a lot of volunteers right now. We could always use more, right? But they're coming to me and they say, what happens when I don't have a volunteer for a Sunday? And I'm saying, shut down the class. They're not saying that. I'm saying it. Because I want to highlight that this church is what you make it. That it's not about what Jason Bradshaw does as an elder. And it's not about what Ryan Filbrin does as an elder or Brian Spirito does as an elder or, or what Jesse Moyer does as the communications ministry head or anyone else. It's not about how Levi leads music or how Brian plays drums. It's not about any of those things. It's about the body of Christ expressing itself in service to the Lordship Jesus Christ. And that if we're going to make this place valuable, each of us don't just need to fill roles. We need to treasure Jesus and not bury our talent in the backyard to invest it, to take our time and our energy, to take our love and compassion and to bring it here into the midst of the body of Christ and to give it away so freely. Because we have been purchased by the service of another to freely give service away. Isn't that what we want? to without qualification or uh, you know, anything else, to be willing to serve whoever needs service. I love what God has done here. And I'm so excited for the future. And I know that when we preach this way, I've seen it happen. We value differently. And I'm wondering how God might create different values in us. To not just kind of serve because it's what's expected, but to serve because we treasure Christ. I wonder what that would look like in Troy. Would you pray with me to that end? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to serve we want to serve you. 
We want to grab your kingdom purpose whether it's encouraging the brothers and sisters that are here at Gospel Community Church or, or whether it's uh, evangelizing those who are lost in our community, whether it's uh, worshiping with a whole heart or, or being a family member to those who are here in Gospel Community, Lord, we pray that you would allow us to engage your kingdom purpose for your honor and glory. That our, our works wouldn't be showmanship to other people around us, but instead they would be rooted in deep faith that you reward us that you invite us to enjoy you in our service. So Lord, we thank you for this lesson from your word. We pray that you would adequately equip us and press us into your service for your glory and honor. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.